This week on Life and Faith. Human beings can survive concentration camps if they have meaning. They can't survive the most affluent circumstances in the world if they have no meaning. Art is absolutely useless, therefore it's essential. It's not no more being, it's just no more of the ticking of the clock. There's a bit of health in every family. It's not all dysfunction. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Greg Sheridan has been the foreign editor at the Australian newspaper for 30 years. He's known for his vast knowledge of domestic and foreign affairs, analysing and writing about Australia's relationship with Asia, and including the rise of China, the US's tumultuous and perhaps waning influence in the world, the changing geopolitical landscape that has shifted so substantially during his career. Greg Sheridan is a regular guest on Sky News, but also the ABC. Until recently, he was less known for his Christian faith, but he has written two books about this now, God is Good for You, A Defense of Christianity in Troubled Times, and Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in the World. We've had Greg in a few times to talk about those books, and when he was in town and in the neighborhood recently... I thought I'd take the opportunity to check in with him and hear his most recent thoughts on faith in public and the religious landscape in Australia and around the world. Never shy of controversy, Greg is happy to wade into topics others might rather avoid. And this makes him an engaging guest. Greg Sheridan, good to have you back in the studio. Thanks for coming. Great to see you, Simon. Thanks so much. Now, you've written two books on Christianity in Australia and the West and faith in contemporary life. It's become a very foreign thing to people these days, hasn't it? It really has. It is so oddball now. (laughs) And uh, in fact, I find when when I'm talking to any group that is not specifically Christian, there's a certain level of... Well, the reactions to talking about Christianity are always mixed. So there's always a couple of Christians in the audience who come along and say, good on you, mate, I'm a Christian too. And then there are people who are just kind of a bit querulous and bemused, don't know what's going on. Then I'm finding without, you know, I'm certainly, I've been very nicely treated by everybody, but uh, I'm finding some actual real hostility as well. Mm -hmm. So people feel impelled to get up and make a speech about the evil of the church or the importance of... Roe v. Wade and how shocking it is that uh, anyone could not want abortion to be completely available or, or something like this. You know, there's a, you know, my pop psychology analysis is that there's a certain existential boredom in the Western condition and a mm. bit of a worry that maybe we've gone down the wrong road. And it's very, they find Christianity actually, this is a terrible generalization, but they find it a bit confrontational because it calls into question a whole series of life choices based on certain premises, which I think are probably mistaken. Yes, there's no doubt there's at least pockets of this sort of hostility, isn't there? But what what was the, I'm interested about the reaction of your friends and colleagues to the first two books on this topic. My friends are indulgent in a friendly way, you know, uh, but they regarded the first book, God is Good For You, as a bit of an eccentricity. A lot of them said to me, well, you've been banging on about this in private conversation for a long time. You had to get it out of your system. There it is. With the second one, 
there's a bit of a sort of a feeling of, you know, really? Siri, are you going to keep on with this? Is this uh, is this going to go on you and on? You haven't gotten over it yet. You haven't got, and you expect <laughs> us to read. Uh, so I never expect my friends to read my book, but I sometimes say to them, well, read the first chapter or something like that. And uh, and one of them who'd read two-thirds of the first book when I gave him the second book, he said, ah, ah. And I said to him, look, if you just read the first chapter, that's good enough. You know, you've you've acquitted the matter of friendship. <laughs> friendship. But a lot of groups that routinely have me to talk to them are just perplexed. They just don't know if this fits into their matrix. You know, it's a bit strange. It's not quite offensive. I'm, you know, I'm not arguing in favour of child abuse or something. But, uh, but on the other hand, it's just it's a, bit a bit weird. It's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah. So let's say, for instance, you go to speak to a group maybe a business group about foreign policy stuff and Australia's place in the world and China and Ukraine, which presumably you get to do quite a lot. Yeah. What's the kind of way in which this topic of your books enters into that discussion? Or does it? I don't know. Well, there's two ways really, Simon. So um, I'm reluctant to do much traveling to speak now unless I'm speaking about the books because, or not about the books, but about Christianity, because I think that is the most important subject. So sometimes I'll just say, look, I'd, you know, I'm happy to come and talk to you about Christianity, but that's it. On the other hand, I still do a lot of foreign policy. I haven't lost interest in my day job. So yeah. I've, I've been the foreign editor of The Australian for 30 years, been a foreign correspondent in Beijing and Washington, spent cumulatively years of my life in Southeast Asia. I haven't lost interest in all that. But I have come to the view that we are in a, in a really deep civilizational crisis arising from a loss of belief. And... One way that manifests itself is that we lack the vigour to deal with competitor societies, which are sometimes very hostile to us on ideological or geostrategic grounds. And, um, you know, I am, I do believe that the formulation, which I think I read first in First Things, that politics is downstream of culture, but culture is downstream of faith. So if you're really trying to solve the problem, you've got to get back to faith. And when I even put that analysis within the broadest geostrategic context, people find that very disconcerting. I mean, so I don't think anyone should believe in Christianity for geostrategic reasons, nothing like that. I mean, you believe in Christianity because it's true. And if it's not true, it's not worth anything. But incidentally, belief in Christianity will also save Western civilization. I mean, it's, and and I'm often asked to speak at this sort of very broad macro level, but again, people are just very edgy about uh, this sort of thing. Yeah, and there's reasons for that, that some of which are, I think, understandable. But let's get to one of the ways you sometimes uh, characterize this in terms of the civilization clashes, the, the depiction of the human person and the differences we sometimes see in that. Is that something we can talk about now? Because uh, I've heard you talk about the sort of the Western understanding of the human person and what that is compared to some other big civilizations. Yeah, so obviously should preface that by saying, of course, Christianity is a universal religion and the majority of Christians in the world today are not not Westerners, not Westerners. Yep. and Christianity is available to anybody in the world, any human being. Hmm. Having said that, Western civilization has its deepest formation in Jewish and Christian traditions, and we have a view of the human being, what it means to be a human being, what the purpose of human life is, and the dignity of each human. I mean, The Western view of human rights, in my view, and I argue this in my books, emerges directly out of the Christian tradition. It's not a repudiation of the Christian tradition. It's a fulfillment of the Christian tradition. And we tend to think 
these values are all self-evident and obvious, but actually they're not. Most civilizations, um, well, they, they all have different ways of approaching that. A lot of religious civilizations get to something similar, but a lot of the secular civilizations don't. So in my analysis of the Chinese Communist Party and indeed of Vladimir Putin's government in Russia, I pay a lot of attention to the fact that both Xi Jinping and Putin were profoundly convinced and educated Marxist-Leninists. And Xi Jinping says this all the time. I mean, don't take my word for it. Take his word no. for it. Yeah. Now, the Marxist-Leninist view of human nature is radically different from the Western view. It's one reason why the West can never understand the Chinese government. The purpose of humanity in the Marxist-Leninist view is to serve the interests of the revolution, the interests of the Communist Party, and the interests of the state. And similarly... Vladimir Putin's key philosopher, Alexander Dugin, he argues that human beings don't have human rights, nations have rights, and he identifies the Russian nation. Now, we in the West have a lot of trouble understanding why we can't just cut a deal with the Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin, because surely they want the same things as us. You know, they just want a, a big house and a car and so forth. <laughs> now, I think we ourselves are cutting ourselves off from the roots of our own values, but still implicit in our all of our assumptions is this Christian idea of human nature. It's a fascinating one, isn't it? That, that, that idea of the individual as opposed to the collective, even at that level of personhood, is a very profoundly significant difference. And you see it roll out in so many different ways. You've also talked about the disenchantment of the West. It's interesting, isn't it, this sort of strangely materialist view of life that I often find kind of incoherent in the sense that people often speak like this but don't live like it's true nobody nobody in my sort of experience lives like it's actually true that we are nothing more than physical beings that life is only what we can see and touch and measure is that your experience as well oh i couldn't agree with you more simon so there's a whole series of modern secular fantasies which are intensely illogical and completely unreasonable and yet widely shared at a notional level, not, as you say, not really at an operational level. So the whole sort of crazy postmodern idea that there's no such thing as truth. But of course, it's very hard to have truth without God because God is the absolute anchor. And without an absolute, all truths tend to be relative. And if all truths are relative, then they're, they're not true. Yet, you go into a courtroom, the judge doesn't say, well, you believe that this man murdered your sister. He believes that it wasn't murder. Who am I to judge? No, the judge has to say, did this happen or not? We have to establish the facts. That's how we live our life. Similarly, the formal view of secular atheism, that's a, a you know tautology, over the last couple of hundred years has been we want to liberate humanity from the bonds of religious servitude. And that means we have to convince them that there is no God and the Bible is full of lies. And what I think Max Weber coined the term disenchantment. So they're trying to take the enchantment out of life, the poetry, the mystery, the magic, Music. and make it all sort of a, a quotidian, dull, banal, logical. But of course, no human being can live that way. Deep in the center of every human being is a, is a search for meaning, a hunger for God. And so people don't treat their families as if they're just matter and energy and of no consequence in the cosmos. They don't treat their deepest relationships that way. Dear atheist friends of mine will still in stress ask some unknown being to intervene on their behalf, you know. 
and I think there's a kind of a madness in this disenchantment, and it's especially a Western madness just at the moment. Other societies are not really going down that road. What do you think have been the most significant causes of this disconnect between the kind of Christian story or the story of the church and those who have <laughs> experienced this sort of disenchantment? What's driven that, do you think? Well, that's a really good question. That's a $64 million question. Um, there's no doubt, you know, we Christians have done a lot of bad things. I mean, I've done a lot of bad things myself, and Christians have done a lot of bad things over 2,000 years. So there's plenty in the debit book, you know. Yeah, there, but, and that's a reasonable criticism, isn't it? Like, if, yeah. if it's meant to be a transformative faith, there is a kind of fair criticism where people have got a bit disillusioned with oh, yeah, the expression yeah. of the faith. Oh, absolutely. And um, I think overall and on balance... Christianity has been overwhelmingly positive for all of humanity as individuals and institutionally. But there's no doubt Christians have done bad things, no doubt about that. So that's been a bit of a discredit to the Christian church. I mean, the the chief import of the clerical child abuse crisis was the impact on the children who were victims. That's the most important thing. But a secondary consequence has also been to tremendously damage the standing of the church, and that, I think, has hurt the culture as well. But I think there are other causes that are even more important than that. It's very hard, I think, for Christian belief to sustain prolonged affluence because every human being needs the mercy of God. But if you are affluent enough and you enjoy good health and so on, you can convince yourself that you don't need God's mercy. And the whole of society tries to insulate the idea of death, put it off and then assure you it'll be painless and so on and and hide it away in nursing homes and not not deal with it. Then on top of that, there are a lot of very specific things. I think the sexual revolution has produced a hyper-sexualized society, very much like pagan society of early Christians. It's very inhuman. It's extraordinarily bad for women and girls, but it's very hard for people to lead a normal good life, a good family life. I mean, I'm glad that I'm the age I am and there weren't mobile phones and there wasn't industrial quantities of pornography available when I was an adolescent and a young man. That's a mercy. So there, there are a million things altogether. And then the academy itself has taken this determined anti-Christian view. So they've conflated all the sins of Western history. And Western history has its sins. It also has its good points. And they've conflated that exactly with Christianity. And they've decided that Christianity is responsible for every bad thing and gets no credit for any good thing. So William Wilberforce's Christian effort to abolish slavery, all the Christian abolitionists in the United States, they count for nothing, but there were certainly Christian slave owners in history, so that is the... Now, put all those together and a million other factors, and that's where we are. This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Greg Sheridan, foreign editor at the Australian newspaper and an author and commentator on all kinds of matters of geopolitical importance, including the place of faith in the West. Now, as faith seems to subside in countries like Australia, it's worth asking what, if anything, is replacing it? What's filling the gap in people's lives? Well, I do believe that, you know, that old line of Chesterton's when people stop believing in Christianity, they don't believe in nothing, they'll believe in anything uh, is true. And you're seeing all kinds of weird, weird stuff, really weird stuff, witchcraft and uh, all kinds of cults of the body and uh, uh, transcendental meaning in, in yoga, environmental religions. 
But I think our culture is at a very interesting moment now because there are three strands in it. There's the post-Christian strand, so that's kind of baby boomers who define themselves by their rejection of their parents' religion and so on. And then there's the Christian strand. Christians are not going to disappear in Western society. You know, Christianity is rebounded from low points many times. Tends to keep popping up, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's very, very hard to kill, you know. But then we have a third element, which is quite new, which is pre-Christian. So the millennials, and this is not a criticism of any in any way, they are a kind of a pagan generation. And I don't say that in any disparaging sense, but... I just haven't had the connection. Yeah, right. We haven't given them. We've determined that they'll never hear about the greatest book in their own heritage, the Bible. They'll never read anything of the Old Testament. They'll never come across the New Testament unless they're Christian or Jewish religious students. Mm. And um, you think back to Martin Luther King's great speech, I Have a Dream, full of biblical references, cadences. I have been to the mountaintop and I have seen the promised land. He couldn't make that speech today and it have any resonance with a young audience. They wouldn't have a clue. Paul McCartney's beautiful song, Let It Be, absolutely full of the New Testament. Uh, You know, Mary's words, let it be done unto me as as the Lord says and... um, Elsewhere in that song, still a light that shines on me, straight from the gospel. And McCartney knew exactly what he was doing. One of the great songs, really, in in human history. Now, these things are not available to millennials. You can't create art like that because they have absolutely no no reference points to Christianity at all. Now, that's both good and bad. They have the, the weaknesses of pagans. They're very confused. They know that they're searching for meaning, but they don't know how to find it. Mm between tattoos and, you know, screen time and so on. But at the same time, they haven't been inoculated against Christianity. They don't have a a settled view that Christianity is the stuff of their parents and it's boring and they've been there, done that. So they are kind of open, I think, to direct appeal from Christians, you know. Um, So we should put our skates on and, uh, (laughs) and get moving with those folks. But those three factors, I think, coexist in our culture. Yes, this loss of story loss of sense of being part of this thing that's so much bigger than yourself does seem to impact people in a very negative way, doesn't it? I think you see that as a loss of something that feels sturdy and foundational. I think that's right. So I've been tremendously influenced in my life by the books of uh, Viktor Frankl, you know, the Jewish uh, Austrian psychiatrist who survived Hitler's uh, death camps. And um, his great book, Man's Search for Meaning, he, he makes the argument that what people need in life more than anything is meaning and essentially love. Uh, there's a beautiful passage when he's in one of the camps and he's separated from his wife who dies in another camp. And he says all he wanted, he didn't even want freedom. He just wanted the opportunity to contemplate the image of his wife. And he knew then what the angels did when they were lost in perpetual adoration of God. And Mm. he could understand perpetual contemplative prayer because of the solace that just contemplating his wife's image gave to him. And human beings can survive concentration camps if they have meaning. They can't survive the most affluent circumstances in the world if they have no meaning. And if you can't see any purpose to your life, I think it's very hard to live. So then what you're doing is you're trying to distract yourself until you die, and you're often just seeking intensity. When people stop looking for truth and beauty, often they're just looking for intensity of experience. And that those are very dangerous combinations in human beings. Greg, what are the things that you hope to have non-believing people understand about faith in the first instance? Well, there is a very strong argument 
that Christianity is good for society because of its good works and because of the stability and purpose that it brings to people. And it'd be great if people who didn't believe understood that belief is not only a good thing, but it's a reasonable thing. However, there's a certain type of analyst who says the social consequences of Christianity are good, therefore we should hang on to it, but I don't actually believe it's true. Mm. Whereas I think if it's not true, it's not worth anything. I, I'd rather be at the races. I want to go to the beach. I've got better things to do if it's not true. If it's true just like Shakespeare is true or just like a poem is true or as a metaphor, well, give me a break. I, I have no interest in it. Yep. So the radical thing that I want to say to people, which and I'm, I'm only one of millions saying it, this is actually true. So just look at it and it's true. Now, I'm not remotely compelling anyone to believe or anything, but the, if they're asking me, that's what I'm telling them. What about believing people? What you'd like them to understand about people who don't have faith? Well, uh, I think all human beings, you know, we need to treat decently, all human beings. And, you know, I've had a long time in journalism and I've met every category of human being there is from terrorists to business tycoons and so forth. And it's certainly the case that religious belief does not confer a monopoly on human goodness. So I've met loads and loads of really good people in whom, in my opinion, God speaks to them in their heart. And uh, even if they don't know to call him God. And I, I don't want to judge anybody or anybody's soul. I'll judge people's behavior. So if they do a bad thing, I'll call that out or whatever. But I think, you know, you treat anybody's belief or lack of belief with respect. I think one of the dark things about our society at the moment is that it's, it's forming the view that traditional Christian belief is somehow or other itself inherently wicked, prejudicial, hostile. And I, I don't think that's true. I don't think there's any evidence of that. Um, but certainly I don't think Christians should be down on non-believers, but I don't think they are on the whole. And lastly, Greg, as you kind of uh, reach a stage in your career, you've had, as you say, decades of, of assessing uh, foreign policy situations and, and understanding Australia and its place in the world in relation to those sort of all the different dynamics of geopolitical sort of struggles and, and changes. How are you feeling? Are you sort of feeling optimistic? Are you feeling pessimistic? It feels like a pretty challenging, we're in a challenging time, but are we always in challenging times? Well, uh, there's a lot to you know, as my friends in the Air Force would say, it's a target-rich environment. You know, there's a lot there's a lot happening. Uh, the tectonic plates are shifting. Uh, I mean, one, one little tiny digression. Spending so much time in Southeast Asia is one of the things that led me to feel comfortable about coming out publicly as a Christian because all of my friends in Southeast Asia, well, not all of them, but large numbers of them, routinely evidence their religious beliefs. I mean, mm. you can be dealing with the most sophisticated interlocutor at the most brilliant think tank in Jakarta or Kuala Lumpur, and he'll say to you, excuse me, I just have to go and pray for five minutes. And yeah. he's not embarrassed about it. It's yeah. just routine. It's just normal. And in a lot of Asian societies, they say, what religion are you? And if, if you if you try to put no religion or something, they, they look at you as though you're, you're talking about. cuckoo. You must be mad. You know, <laughs> I remember interviewing um, the Coptic Pope from Egypt, uh, Pope Tawadros, and, and saying to him, had he ever been tempted by atheism? And it took about six goes before he understood the question and then he looked at me for the first time and I could see in his eyes the proposition these Australians are very strange aren't they you know <laughs> so the phenomenon of religious belief is very strong everywhere in the world except in western societies Australia's place in the world 
I think is very challenging. We live in a very competitive environment. It is the case, without being too political about it, that the the military build-up of the Communist Party of China is the biggest military build-up we've seen in peacetime, and we've never in history seen a military build-up this big, which doesn't result in the use of the military. You know, if you spend all your life investing in a hammer, then you're going to find a nail uh, eventually. But on the other hand, I profoundly believe that there's no determinism in history. History is to be decided by people. The fact that things have happened in the past doesn't mean that they will happen in the future. Uh, I'm encouraged, even though Christianity is in ambient decline in the West, I'm encouraged by all the new shoots and all the new movements and uh, and the movements of grace um, throughout the society. And in any event, I'm an Irishman, so we are perennially happy even though the circumstances are always desperate, they're not altogether serious, and there's lots of uh, happy warrior work ahead, but it's fun to fight anyway. As long as you fight clean and fun and love your enemy, that's great, you know, so uh, you're not going to die of boredom. That's the great thing. None of us is going to die of boredom. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks today to Greg Sheridan. Greg is the author of many books, but the ones we were mostly referring to today are God is Good for You, A Defense of Christianity in Troubled Times, and Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. You can catch Greg each week in the Australian newspaper. Please send us any feedback you might have to podcast at publicchristianity.org. We'd love to hear from you. Next week. We know wildernesses on Christmas Day when everybody's playing happy families and we haven't got a happy family. We face wildernesses when we lose jobs, when all our dearest dreams go down the gurgler. We tend to think that they're the times when nothing good could possibly happen. And yet it's those wildernesses that bring out the very best in us. They show us that we're actually stronger than we think we are.